0: If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the second book of the prophet Samuel. Second Samuel. And we're going to be looking at two different chapters. We're going to look at chapter 9, the first part of chapter 9. And then we're going to look at the first part of chapter 10. And we're going to try to see a thread that flows through these two very seemingly completely unrelated passages. Okay? So this is God's word. And David said... Is there yet any that's left to the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said to him, Art thou Ziba? He said, Thy servant is. And the king said, Is there any yet of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? Ziba said to the king, Jonathan yet has a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel and Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant, that thou should look upon such a dead dog as I? Go now into chapter 10. We'll look at the first part of chapter 10, verse 1. It came to pass, after this, that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hands of the servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanun their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city, and to spy it out, and overthrow it? Wherefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off the one half of their beard, and cut off their garments in the middle, even unto their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them, because these men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then return. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of beth and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and of King Mahaka, 1,000 men, and of Ishtab, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of his mighty men. We're going to end the reading there. So, seemingly, these two passages have so very little in common. You'd almost, you'd almost have to strain to see how one follows the next one directly. Um, you can never, ever disregard the fact that one chapter is after another chapter. Sometimes, because we think in little snippets, we think in verses, and we think in chapters, we think of little events... The idea of where something is placed sometimes doesn't have anything to do with this, but these are related. These have a lot to do with each other, we'll we'll hope to see. So, first of all, you have to realize that David has become king, but it's taken him 20 years to become king. He was anointed when he was still a boy, long before he ever fought Goliath. He was anointed by Samuel to be the next king. God had rejected Saul. Saul was everybody's favorite. Exactly who you would have voted for if you would have voted for king. He was handsome. He was tall. He was strong. He was smart. He was brave. Everything that you would think you would want in a leader, that someone could go and fight your battles for you. Um, and, the, and the people really rejected God when they insisted on a king, because God had no problem with a king. Jesus Christ will be king forever and ever and ever. Amen. And God has no problem with it. It was totally God's plan that there would be a king of his people. But the people wanted a king so that they could be like everybody else. And in judgment, God allowed them to have it. And Saul became the first king of the country. And he did everything that Samuel said he would do. He took an army. He took a palace. He took servants. He took people. He took tithes. He took everybody and paid taxes. Everything you thought of as the downside of having a ruler, he was fine with. It turns out that he did a really lousy job of actually doing what they hired him to do. He didn't go out into battle. David fought his battles. In fact, his jealousy burned because he uh, had songs written about him that, that uh, Saul slayed his thousands. The problem was the second verse of that song was that David slayed his tens of thousands and it made him jealous. And he looked into David's life, and David was a nowhere kid who was taking care of the sheep. And everything that he touched, God blessed. And so Saul just took, took it upon himself to make David's life miserable. And he hunted him actively with an entire army for years. David was running from his life for years. So eventually, David had opportunity, multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he would never do it. Because Saul was anointed and David feared God. Something that was different between Saul and David is that David feared God. And Saul really didn't. God in his mind was the God of most people's religion. You are polite. You are, you are um, you're quiet when it comes to the national God. There's very few people that won't bow their head at a graduation, very few people so defiant that they would stand straight up with their eyes open because essentially what you're doing is you're saying, I'm not a part of this group, and our group holds to a national god. And so America, for instance, is very religious. I don't think we're a godly nation, but we're very religious, and we're becoming more and more religious all the time. It's a religious of whatever choice you want to make. But here we have Saul the king. And Saul has a son, he has several sons, but his oldest son's name is Jonathan. And David, uh, after he um, wins battle and battle, he becomes the captain of the guard. He is now the chief uh, army officer, the the general. Actually, Abner's the general, and David is essentially the guerrilla guy. He goes in and he takes small groups and he goes and he, he just has success after success, military campaigns. And so David works for Saul. And David has married into his family. He has his wife is Saul's daughter and he gets to know Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son and Jonathan would be the crown prince. Jonathan is the heir apparent. He's the one that will become king when Saul dies. Problem with this is that that as Saul has lived out his more increasingly godless life God has rejected him. He's rejected his line. So the first thing that Samuel the prophet tells him is that your line will not be perpetual. You will not have a son of a son of a son of a son on the throne of Israel forever. I reject you. And then later it's not just your family that's rejected, but I'm going to reject you as king. And I will choose a king after my own heart. And we see that David will become the second king. When David speaks here in chapter 9, it's the first thing that he says as king of the entire country. So we see for years, David was king, but only a few people acknowledged him. Only Judah, one tribe, acknowledged him as king. And he was king over Judah for seven years. Then eventually, and there were other kings trying to be two kings at once kind of thing. And eventually at this place in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, David has established full control of the country. And this is the first thing out of his mouth. In verse nine, it's, or verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, David said, Is there yet any that is left to the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So first of all, you have to think of this. Is there any left in the house of Saul? It would make sense that a new king that's establishing and kind of congealing his power, that the first thing that he would do is assassinate everyone that would, be, that would have a title to the throne. So you do not want a political intrigue going on in your country. You do not want two people that have essentially a line for the, for the title. And so it was totally normal for one king to annihilate the family of another king. I mean, even your bees do that, I think. Is that true? Even your bees do that. It's, you cannot have two leaders at once. It makes for chaos, and it makes for chaos here. And so David is now looking for anybody left of Saul's house. Now you have to remember, Saul has died about 20 years ago. It's taken 20 years for David to establish power, complete power of the country. And he died on Mount Gilboa, and he died on, on his own sword, he kills himself in his own sword, and he dies in, essentially, um, he just gets worse and worse and worse and then commits suicide. It's, it's essentially a downward spiral. Jonathan dies in the same battle. So Jonathan has now been dead for 20 years. Now, Jonathan is interesting. David would not attack Saul because Saul had God's anointing, but there was something that happened earlier as Jonathan became friends with David. Jonathan did something amazing. He took off his coat that was specific to the prince. Only the prince could wear this. And it was a coat that signified his rank. And he took off his sword. And there were only two swords in the country. The king had a sword and the prince had a sword. Nobody else in the country had an iron sword. And and so Jonathan takes his sword off. He takes off his coat or his robe. And he gives it to David. And what he does is he says, I know you will be king. I know that I will not be king. And I'm totally happy that you're king. And so he makes a promise, essentially an allegiance to David. You are going to be king, and I will fight along with you all of my life. Now, in chapter 20, this is back in 1 Samuel. I'm going to read a couple passages because we see something very important. It wasn't just the anointing that kept uh, David from killing Saul, but it was a covenant promise that he made with Jonathan. So this is in chapter twenty of First Samuel. Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about the morrow at any time on the third day, and behold, there is is to be good towards David, then I sin not unto you and show it. The Lord do so much more to Jonathan, but if it please my father to do evil, then I will show thee and send you away that you may go into peace and that the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. Okay, so pause just a second. He's saying, I'm going to try to find out if my father is out to get you. And if he means you evil, I'll tell you. If he doesn't mean you evil, I'll tell you. I want you to know. Okay, so I'll keep my eyes open. And as I see uh, that my father is trying to destroy you, I'll let you know so you can run. Verse 14 says, And thou shalt not only while I live show me kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off any kindness from my house forever. No, not even while the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan said this, I will tell you if my father's trying to kill you. I will. And I'll, try, and I'll tell you if he's not. But I ask that you always treat me kindly for the rest of my life, that you promise that you will show me the loving kindness of God, that you will treat me with the same kindness that God shows when he makes a covenant, when he makes a promise. God keeps his promise. And when he binds himself with an oath in a promise, To a person, it's done. It's done forever and always. It never can be rescinded. God will never change his mind about these things. And so that loving kindness that God shows his covenant people, will you show me? Will you promise that you'll never kill me while you have power because you will be king and I will not? Will you show me kindness? And when I'm gone, will you show my family kindness? And David says yes. David promises him. So he makes a promise, and now, 20 years later, he's finally king, and the first thing out of his mouth, is there anybody left in Saul's house that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, that is, that is amazing. I, I'm not going to try to find Saul's relatives so that I can destroy them, but I want to find them so that I can show kindness to him. Now, the word kindness here in this passage is used three times, and it's, the, it's loving kindness. The hymn that we sing, loving kindness, loving kindness, God is loving kindness, that is this word. It's the word that God always promises to show his people that he is in covenant with, that he will never, ever treat them differently. He has promised to show them kindness, and it's something that's true of God. It bubbles out of God himself that because he's at peace with this person, how can he treat him, okay? If you are not at peace with God, God cannot show his loving kindness to you. He must show his justice to you and will show his justice to you. You may not think it's going to happen, but it will happen. But if you are in in covenant with his son, he will only show loving kindness. God will only show it, and you may think that you see God's frown. You may think that you don't have what you want or what you need. You may think that you your health is not as good as you would want it or people are mean at you. Okay, they call you shut up. That is not God's anything but loving kindness. God is treating you through his providence in a way that shows only your best. And things will work for your good despite what people try to do to you, despite the wickedness that's involved in other people. God will use that in your life. And all the days of your life, he'll show you love and kindness. Well, David said, is there anybody left? And he doesn't say in Jonathan's house. He said, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Not for their own sake, but for Jonathan's sake. So back to verse 2. And there was at the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. So he, said, this was Saul's main steward. This was Saul's chief of staff, okay? And Saul was the king of the country. So we're talking about a wealthy man who had many, many things, and his chief servant was Ziba. And when Saul died, Ziba lost his job. And then over the years of conflict and two kings and all kinds of stuff going on, eventually David is now king of the entire country. This is his first act. He finds Ziba, who was Saul's servant, and he says, is there anybody left in the family? This is verse 3. Uh, is there anybody yet left to the house of Saul that I may show kindness? Remember, loving kindness of God, God's loving kindness unto him. Zeba said to him, to the king, Jonathan yet has a son, which is lame on his feet. Interesting. Now, when David comes into the palace, David earns his keep. David fights the battles. David goes out with the military force. David works. In fact, David is keeping the country alive because Saul is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He doesn't go out with the armies. David goes out with the armies. And David is doing what he's supposed to. So when you look at David, you're like, he's worth the pay. He's worth his room and board. This is someone who's keeping us alive and keeping us strong. He's somebody I would want to hire. So in a lot of ways, David was an employee of the king. He worked for the king. But when Ziba said, you wouldn't want him, yes, there is someone left. Jonathan still has a living son. All the other sons of Saul died in the same battle. They all died together. They all were ambushed. They all died at once. Uh, There is nobody left. But there is one son, one boy that was left at home when he was really little, and he's lame on his feet. You wouldn't be interested. He can't do anything for you. This man is 21. He can't fight in your army. He can't hold a sword. He can't even ride a horse. He has to be carried from place to place. He can't work for you. I don't think you'll want him. Zebad already has an opinion. This is somebody that you that you doesn't add value to you. Doesn't help you. Won't help you be better. Won't help you be longer, farther. So let me give you the backstory. This is Second Samuel uh, chapter four, verse four. Now, this was the day of the battle. This is when Saul died. So this is 20 years before. And Jonathan and Saul died in the same day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame on his feet. He was five years old when the tidings of Saul and Jonathan came out of Jezreel. That's where the battle was. The nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. So he, he was a baby, little kid, kindergartner, and the nurse is found out that the king has now died. This is a big, big deal. And the, it re, the news reached the castle, and she is screaming around, and she grabs the child, and everybody's packing the clothes and the pots and the pans, and she's running around in circles, and she drops the baby and breaks his back. And from that time on, he cannot walk. He's lame on both of his feet. He's not just injured. He's incapacitated. He cannot do what everybody is doing. Now, where is he? What has changed for Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth would have grown up at, would have grown up to be the firstborn of the firstborn. He would have been in line for the throne. He would have been the grandson. He would have been the Prince William that would have ultimately become the king of the country. He would have been trained for it. He would have been educated to it. He would have been treated like the king to where he would have had a terrible big head and, and been a monster like everybody else that's told their king. And so he is now no longer living in the castle. He is living on the other side of the Jordan River in absolutely nowhere land. All right? He, it says, he is living in Lodabar. This is verse 4. The king said, where is he? Ziba said, Behold, he's in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So you have the Jordan River, and what used to be Israel on the other side of the Jordan, when Moses gave, them, gave the people their land, um, at one time was Israel, but long ago had just become enemy territory because the, the basically there were no Hebrews there at all. And on the other side of the river, in a place called Lodabar, which means no pasture. On the east side of the Jordan River, it's what is now the country of Jordan, which is desert. It's nothing but desert. There is nothing there. Lodabar means no pasture. No grass growing is the name of this town. He lives in nowhere land in the desert in a house of a nice man who remembered that he was the grandson of the king. And because he was the king to honor his country and honor his God, he is now taking care of this man. He lives with him, okay? So you're seeing that the king then, this is verse four 5, sent and fetched him out of the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. So he makes uh, Mephibosheth come to him wherever he happens to be. Now, uh, there is no, he's not in Jerusalem yet. He has no palace yet. He's just basically consolidated his power. But wherever he is, Makir uh, has to tell Mephibosheth, Uh, send some people with him and take him. The king is requesting him. Now, Mephibosheth knows. He absolutely knows. He knows that he's going to be decapitated in front of the new king. That's what everybody knows. There's nobody in Lodabar that doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He realizes that he's going to come, that the king is going to say, you are the grandson of my enemy. You're the grandson, and I never killed this guy while he was alive, but but God put an end to him, and now I'm going to put an end to you. And there wouldn't be anybody that would second guess that. Everyone would agree that it was probably a great idea. And and Mephibosheth himself knew it. Okay? This is verse six. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come to David, he fell down on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. So you can kind of see just the tension. He knows that he's about to be killed right in the room that he went in that room and will never come out alive again. He realizes it. But something is very interesting in Mephibosheth, the prince. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. Jonathan in his own said, "I would rather you be king than me." And nobody in the world would have th- thought that he was anything but stupid. What do you mean? You will be king? No, David will be king. I see God's hand on him. I would rather he be king than me. Jonathan takes off his coat and takes his sword and hands it to David and said, When you become king and you have all power and God has completely squashed every enemy, will you remember my family with kindness, the loving kindness of God? And he does. And so he calls Mephibosheth. Now Mephibosheth is on his face. And you can imagine, you can be powerless and still be a defiant. You can have no power at all. You think that the wicked of this earth are going to be weenies upon their judgment? Absolutely not. They'll spit and curse God to his face as they're being hauled off to their punishment forever. And they'll curse God forever. They'll never stop cursing. They'll never stop hating. They hate that God has power that they do not have. They hate it. And they hate God for having it. And they hate it that they're not the king. So here's Mephibosheth, the crown prince, the only one from the house of Saul alive. And he's on his face calling himself a dog. And, and instead, of saying, instead of David saying, kill him, the only thing he hears is his name. He hears his name, Mephibosheth. And he looks up and he said, behold your servant. And this is what David says. Don't be afraid. Fear not. This is verse seven. "I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and you shall eat bread at my table continually." Now it's an amazing. That's four verses, four times in 13 verses. You will eat bread at my table for the rest of your life. You will have everything that belonged to your grandfather restored. And you will live as a prince at my table. Now, how long would it have taken him to process that? He's expecting to be murdered. He's expecting to be assassinated on the spot. And he looks up. The king says his name. And then says, I intend to show you loving kindness. Not because of you, not because you can work for me, not because you've got good legs. Because to have good legs does not mean that you wouldn't be his enemy. You see, he would have been his enemy had he been a strong warrior. He would have still been his enemy. Just because he was powerless doesn't mean that David should have killed him. So he looks up and David said, everything that belonged to your grandfather is now yours. Now, I don't know what would have belonged to the king, but something tells me that the guy became the richest man in the country all at once. Everything that belonged to him was restored, and you will live for the rest of your life every day as my son. I will adopt you. I will bring you in, and you will be adopted. And you you see his reaction. His reaction was, why would you look upon a dead dog like me? It wasn't a ha-ha, I get it all back. Ha-ha, I knew I was going to win in the end. It was this idea of why would you treat me with kindness when you should have treated me with contempt? There was, a, there was an absolutely, it blew his mind. Do you see? The reaction of Mephibosheth is the reaction of a Christian. The reaction of Jonathan is the reaction of a Christian. When you give the sword and the coat to Jesus Christ before he becomes Apparently, king of everything. When you know that he will be king, but nobody else in, in America or the world rel- realizes that he'll be king, they all think we're, own, we're our own king, and you give that away and you make a covenant with him, then it is because of Jesus that God treats you kindly. It is not because you can do anything for God. Don't think it. Don't think it. Don't think, oh, I should have died in that accident, but God saw that there was something good in me. And that he was going to do this. No, 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 no. There's no reason at all God saved you. Except that you were bound by a covenant promise to his son that he loves. And as he exalts his son, you are exalted. He exalts you. But he exalts the humble. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So when it says in 1 Peter, under God's mighty hand, you humble yourself. And he will raise you up. But anybody that opposes him, he opposes. God will oppose like a company front. Have you ever seen all the Indians along the top of the ridge in the cowboy movies? And there's a hundred Indians along the... That is what God does. It says he opposes you. He will chase you down to destroy you. But you humble yourself and you come to him. And he will lift you up. And so he comes and he calls himself a dead dog. And it says for the rest at the end of this book, at the end of chapter 9... For the rest of his days, he ate every night at the king's table. And you can imagine the sound. There's a sound that that would make. Can you imagine the clumping? Here he is, clump slide, clump slide, as Mephibosheth is coming to the table. That's the sound of the dining hall at the king's palace, and it's a beautiful sound. Let's go to 10 really quick. 10, you have a different situation. Nahash, if you remember Nahash that wanted to put everybody's eyes out, hated Saul. When David becomes king, Nahash is like, hmm, I can, I'm gonna help him. Okay, because he wasn't Saul. So he becomes, he politically helps him. When David is very weak, he helps him. And he dies. Nahash dies. And Hanun his son becomes king of the Ammonites. Now Ammonites is to bar, keep going and towards the sunrise, and you'll hit. Jordan, and that's it, middle of nowhere, in the desert, poor people, live in a desert. And here's Hanun, the son, and instead of listening to his father's advisors, gets his buddies. And the buddies all advise him, and and so David sends an embassage. So the ambassadors come and say, uh, your majesty, we're so sorry. King David is so sorry that your father is dead. He loved your father. Please accept our condolences. And Hanun's buddies was like, they're spies. They're trying to find out how bad we are. No, 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 no. So what they do is they cut off half their beard, one half, the left side or the right side. They leave the other side of their beard. They cut off their clothes at the belly button and kick them out of town. So they're ashamed, and they're leaving. And as soon as they cross back over the Jordan, they come to Jericho first, that first town on the other side. And they send word to the king what happened to him. And the king said, don't come yet, let your beards grow back and then you come and give your full report, but don't worry, I know everything. And he, this is in chapter 10. He now tells his general, Abner, he said, I want the whole army, every man. You're going to attack this, this town with such overwhelming force, there's not going to be anything left. Do, I don't want a war. I want an annihilation, and it needs to be full and total. Every fighting man we have in the country, I want them now. And you're going to take three weeks to march 75 miles. Okay? So the capital of Jordan is, is the capital of Nahash's Jordan. And it's not even 100 miles from Jerusalem. And you're going to take three weeks to march the entire army there, and then I want the biggest battle of the age Okay, And Abner says, yes, sir. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. Now, immediately Hanun, the little boy, the upstart, the guy who listened to his buddies, said, "Uh, oh no, what are we going to do? We don't have enough people to fight the entire army of David. So he starts hiring people. He hires the this's and the thats, and you get 10,000 They start selling everything they got, everything in the bank. They just like emptying it to try to get anybody to protect them because they're about to be annihilated. And in verse eighteen, can you put up eighteen, Josh? Eighteen and nineteen, we see the result. The Syrians who were hired by the Ammonites fled before Israel, and David slew the men of seven hundred. Chariots of the Syrians, 40,000 horsemen, smote Shabbok, the captain of the host who died there. And when all the kings that were servants of Havadezer saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help any more of the Ammon anymore. 40,000 people died in the battle. All of their military equipment, everything they bought, everything they rented was destroyed And you say, what in the world does that have to do with Mephibosheth? Do you see it? David treated Hanun the same as he treated Mephibosheth. No difference at all. It wasn't because Hanun was awesome. And David was like, I want to be Hanun's friend because he's great. I wish he could be my buddy. No, he realized that his father had shown him a kindness. And for no other reason, he wanted to show kindness back. It was for his father's sake that he sent the embassage. It was for his father's sake that he said, I'm sorry that you're alone. I'm sorry. But instead of accepting it the way Mephibosheth accepted his mercy, with mercy that came with it, he opposed him. And instead of God giving grace to the humble, he opposed the proud and destroyed them completely. So that it wasn't just they that were destroyed, but now you've got three vassal countries that are now all made peace with Israel as a result of this one battle. It is, it's amazing when you realize that the gospel is here, that, that God is king. God doesn't beg anybody for anything. He commands us to repent and to come with a, a humble heart towards Jesus, to kiss the Son while there's still time, is to be treated with all the kindness of God, the loving kindness that proceeds out of God's heart. But otherwise, there is nothing except your own ruin. The, the, the difference between chapter 9 and chapter 10 is the difference in this world. It's the difference of the people in this town. It's the difference in the people in my family and in your family. That's how it is. Because how we treat God's kind offer does mean everything because God is king and Jesus is his forever, ever king. So we were treated for Jesus' sake. And that is why we, we meet. We meet corporately to remember what Jesus did to buy us. The covenant that secured our safety was the covenant sealed in his blood. It's a New Testament. That's a covenant. The covenant promise that bound you to Jesus Christ required the death of Jesus Christ. So forever, and until we see him, until we drink in his kingdom with him at the table, we will remember his death. We will hold it out as our prize, our trophy, will follow the cross till our last day. Because that is what the people who he has shown kindness. And when you look up here and you hold this up and you say, who am I but a dead dog that you would have anything to do with me? Why would you treat me with kindness? And then you realize he's glorifying his son who married you. His son married you. His son asked you and you said yes and you bound your heart together. And when you are bound with him, you have not offended God. He's propitiation, it said in that verse. The propitiation of God tore away his wrath and he only has love and kindness towards you. And it's the spirit of adoption that we cry, Abba, Father. So the, the deacons are going to come. They're going to hand you both the juice and the bread, and you're going to hold them, please. Don't, don't eat until we eat together. Then we're going to read the passage in 1 Corinthians of the bread, and we're going to take the bread. Then we're going to take the cup. We're going to take the cup together. Then we're going to pray and thank the Lord for the kindness he has shown for us. Okay?